Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to see everyone. I uh, love this time of the year. I don't love the fact that Christmas stuff has been out since before Halloween. That's not why I love this time of the year. I tell you why I love this time of the year. I love this time of the year because college football and college basketball intersect. That's why I love this time of the year. And those are two of my favorite sports to watch. It means that on any given time that I actually have freedom to sit down and turn on the television, I am going to find something worth watching on TV. It's awesome time of the year. And I think one of the things that I love to watch the most is, besides the game, is the interaction between the coaches and the players, especially those coaches that are, you know, at the top of the game, you know, the best basketball coaches, the best football coaches. And, you know, when you watch those guys in action, those are some scary dudes sometimes, right? I mean, they are scary. I mean, they are intense. They will light guys up on the side of the field and get in their face, and it's like, man, uh, coach, don't you realize he's like 6'7", 380 pounds? He could squash you like a bug, and you're only like 5'8", you know? And it doesn't matter. These guys are so intense, and they're so good at their job. And yet what's interesting is that these coaches... Even when they light up a player, it just seems like they have the absolute loyalty and the love and respect of these players. The best coaches, they've got it. And they've got that interaction with those players. And it's a neat dynamic to watch. I just appreciate it. And I think I appreciate it because I've had men like that in my life. Most of us maybe have had somebody, a mentor, a drill sergeant, a boss, a coach, uh, somebody who was maybe at first, man, this guy is intense, or this gal's, and they're scary. But as the relationship developed, uh, you know, it became more special to you. Perhaps at a critical point, they, they shifted. Maybe they pressed a different button 
that connected with you, right? And or they changed their approach when they they realized how they needed to interact with you to help you get to that next level, and and it jived, and now there was this this relationship of mutual respect and love and affection and encouragement, and it and it really became something special in your life when that mentor made that shift from being maybe intimidating, somebody that you were a little afraid to, but to now we're, okay, wow, this is important to me. And in a sense, I bring that up because in a sense, this is what's happening in the book of Romans in chapter five. In chapter five, Paul is making a shift. And if you think about how he has been in the first four chapters, we've seen Paul, the scary dude coach. Okay, Paul has been at his most intense in these first four chapters. It's been Paul bringing all of his prodigious scholastic and biblical and apostolic and intellectual skills to bear on this uh, issue that he's been facing. And like a world-class lawyer, he's been laying out the case for justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And he's anticipated the objections of those who have been listening. And, and he brings up one objection after another, and he just knocks them down one after another after another. And he's, he's brought up these heavy themes like God's wrath and, and our sin and the depravity of our lives. And then the, the atonement, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And he's taken all of these big themes and shown how they intersect with justification with God declaring us righteous in Jesus Christ. And it's intense. These last four chapters have been intense, and they've been deep. But now in chapter 5, the tone begins to change. You see, the argument has ended. The, the prosecution has now rested, right? The case has been built. So now Paul shifts his attention to the practical experience with this grace of the gospel and how it affects us in our everyday lives as we interact with the people with whom we live and as we interact with the people in who, with whom we worship in this church. And with this shift, what we get to see is incredibly effective because we see Paul becoming more pastoral, uh, more gentle, uh, more practical, everyday, here's where you live kind of person. And he's helping us understand how this great truth of justification by grace through faith actually makes a difference at your work tomorrow or in your marriage or as you raise your children. And so this shift in attention is important. Chapters 5 to 8, this section is Paul getting down into the trenches with us. And I tried to think of how would I describe this section? We're gonna be here in chapters five through eight all the way to the middle of February. And so here's a sentence that I wanna give you that kind of helps us, uh, these first few verses in chapter five, uh, this describes these verses and also this entire section that is gonna be a, a new portion of scripture in the book. By declaring us righteous in Christ, God is rewriting our life story. It's past, it's present, and it's future. 
And we're going to see this in, in, in a small form this morning in these first 11 verses. And then over these, these four chapters, chapters 5 through 8, you're, we're going to see how this is so true as Paul begins to take this beautiful truth of justification and bring it right down into our present, but also see how it's affected us in the past and, and how it's anchored in the past. And then, of course, the future hope that we have and where God is taking us with glorification. So let's begin. Let's see this morning three ways that, that, that we receive benefits right now in our everyday lives by being justified by grace through faith. The very first one's in verse 1. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that phrase is linking. So, all right. Look at everything that I've taught you about justification by faith. Now, because of that, here you go. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's neat that Paul starts there. Here he is, a Jewish man, a Jewish scholar, and he starts with that word that was so important to Jewish believers and Jews in general, Israelites, peace, shalom, right? That's what he starts with, shalom in Hebrew, arene in Greek, peace with God. And by, by using that expression, peace with God, uh, Paul is also giving us a clue as to what our life was like before justification. We weren't at peace with God. We were at war with God. And this is what he tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Literally, the mind that is set on the flesh is at war with God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Later in our chapter that we're in this morning, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. This is our natural state, how we're born at war with God. But the practical benefit of, of justification through the death of Jesus on the cross, paying for our sins, peace with God has been established. And that peace with God brings a practical benefit that we enjoy every day. In verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The practical benefit of being at peace with God is that we now have access to God. There is a difference, by the way, of the peace with God and the peace of God. You, you can have peace with God and not have the peace of God. We'll see that in just a moment when we look at the verses on suffering. So there is a difference. You can't have the peace of God without being at peace with God, but you can have the peace, be peace with God and not have the peace of God. But what the peace with God does do, he says, is it gives us access to God. What does he mean by that? Well, one of my, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Esther. Remember that story? Some of you know it. Maybe some of you don't know that story. The story of Esther is a great one. Here she is. She is a, a Jewish young woman. She's living in the Persian Empire. She's in exile. She lives in the, the very heart of the Persian Empire. The great king, uh, Xerxes the Great, is the emperor. He is the most powerful leader and man in the known world at that time. Uh, the empire is at its, at its peak of power and geographical expansion, and he doesn't like how his wife treats him at a great party. She ignores him. 
And so Xerxes puts his wife, banishes his wife, Vashti, and says, I need a new wife. And so they basically do their version of Persia's Got Talent, right? And they do this big, uh, this big pageant, right? And they bring all these beautiful women in, and Esther wins the Persia's Got Beauty Talent contest. And she becomes the new queen of Xerxes. And she is beautiful, Xerxes loves her, but she's a Jew. She's an undercover Jew. She doesn't tell anyone that she's a Jew. And in the story, of course, things happen that put the entire Jewish race at risk. They're looking at a genocide. And so finally, to protect her people, Esther goes into the throne room of the emperor uninvited. Now that's significant. Why? Because in that day and age, if you came into the throne room of the emperor uninvited, if he did not raise the scepter and allow you to come into the, the room, uh, you know, you're dead. They took you off and they, they, they lopped off your head. And so she dressed herself up. She got herself looking beautiful. It's interesting how the, the Bible makes it very clear. She went out, you know, she probably bought a new outfit. She made sure she looked as beautiful. She wasn't dumb, right? It's like, if he's going to turn me down, there's something wrong with this dude, right? He got himself looking really, she got looking, she comes into the throne room. And of course, what does he do? He looks at her and he goes, wow, let me raise that scepter. <laughs> and he welcomes her in and she has access into the throne room. And of course, the story proceeds from there and how she ultimately saves her people, the Israelites, and God is glorified. It's a great story of someone who's given access to the king. And by analogy, we can see how important it is, right, to have access to the king. But here's where the analogy breaks down for us. Because Esther was able to get access to that king, to that emperor Xerxes, because of her natural beauty, right? and how gorgeous she was, and how talented she was. We don't get access to our king because of our natural beauty. We don't stand at the door of the throne room of God and say, please let me in because of how beautiful I am. We stand there, and we are given access not because of our beauty. The scriptures teach us we're given access because of the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the good news here is that with God sitting on the throne, even though we don't have this natural beauty, we have been given this beauty from Christ, and we don't even have to wait for God to raise a scepter and say, you're allowed to come in. We've been given a blank check. He's told us, you can come into my throne room anytime you want. The doors are wide open 24-7, 365 days a year. You're beautiful, you have access, and your access is not at the whim of some king. It's yours. Take advantage of it. We have access to God into this grace in which we stand. Think about how important this is. Within the storyline of redemptive history. Think about how important this is to the, the Jewish members of the congregation that Paul is talking about. Because what has their experience been? Their experience has been no access. Because when you think about the temple, there in Jerusalem, which represented the presence of God and all that was there, there was nothing but a series, one series after another after another of obstacles that were preventing access to God. 
First, you had a court of the Gentiles where the Jews and the Gentiles could interact with one another, but then you walked up some steps, there were some doors, boom, a barrier. The Gentiles no longer had access. And you would walk through those doors into the temple into a courtyard, and that was known as the courtyard of the women. Why do you think that was called the courtyard of the women? Because in that courtyard, there was a point where the men and women could mingle, but then the women had to stop because they were not allowed to go any further than that point. Their access was now denied. And you walked through some more doors and you came into another courtyard and here was an area where the the Jewish men could stand, but then there was a point that they couldn't go past. Their access was denied and the only area that, 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 that was left was for the priest. And the priests could stand and they could worship and they could do their duties. But then there was a line that they couldn't pass. Only one guy could go past that. That was the high priest. And even he had access denied except one time a year when he could go into the Holy of Holies. Do you see how important this is? Why the author of Hebrews would say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, find grace to help us in time of need. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It is continually available to us whenever we want it, whenever we need it. The practical benefit of being justified by grace through faith alone. Secondly, not only do we have peace with God, he tells us in this passage, and this is a little bit different, this may make you scratch your head, but he tells us that we suffer differently because we have been justified by grace through faith. Not only that, but we rejoice, he writes in verse 3, in our sufferings. The word sufferings here is thlipsis, In general, in the New Testament, it's used to refer to pressure that is put upon God's people from outside sources, like persecution. But Paul, um, he commonly uses it to include uh, the the afflictions. In fact, it's often translated as afflictions in other verses. He, He uses it to include the normal trials and tribulations of life, also persecutions for the cause of Christ, but but those events that occur in our life because God is refining us, whether he has ordained it to happen or he's permitting it to happen, those things that enter into our life that cause pain and trouble that are refining us. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings and our afflictions knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, we have to make some important observations, as Paul is getting extremely practical here, because he's touching on an area of life that every one of us could relate to, right? Suffering, hardness, hard times. First thing we have to make an observation of is that being justified by grace through faith doesn't mean that we have to rejoice or boast for suffering. We don't have to do backflips for the fact that we're in the middle of pain. God doesn't expect us to do, you know, to lead cheers for persecution. 
We don't have to boast and rejoice for suffering. Neither does he give us the right to think that we are better than other people for the fact that we are suffering, nor does it mean that we should ever think that because we have been justified and are following Christ, that we are exempt from suffering. In fact, this passage teaches us that suffering is actually an important part of our new life story. A very important part. And to me, this is actually one of the most practical everyday benefits of what Paul is getting at when it comes to our justification by faith. And it's also why it's so important that we understand this truth properly and we're able to appropriate it properly. We have to know what it means and what it doesn't mean. Okay? When we don't appropriate justification by grace through faith uh, alone properly, suffering ends up becoming a major stumbling block in our Christian's life story. Why is this? What happens because of a couple of reasons. For some people, suffering ends up validating a legalistic paradigm. In other words, yep, I knew it. I sinned. I messed up. I didn't obey God. God's upset with me. I'm not good enough. And now I have to pay the price. I have to experience the anger of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God. And this is why I'm being going through this trial and this tribulation, why I have to suffer. And there's nothing for it. I just got to get through it, bear up to it. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum that's often common in Christians is that down deep, we think that in some way God owes us for our goodness, for our righteousness, and that you know we have done so well in living for Him, and we've checked all the boxes, and we've been a good Christian man, a good Christian woman, so how could He let us down like this? How could He do this to me and let this happen to me? And both of these extremes and response are a lack of properly appropriating and understanding that justification is by, what's the next word? Grace. Through what? Faith. Both of these responses are because we are bringing works into our relationship and into this idea of justification with God. That's why we end up stumbling here. And listen, this gets to such a point that suffering, if you talk to people who walk away from the faith, inevitably, I guarantee you, the vast majority of the time, it has something to do with suffering. Or people who have suffered, or they've watched somebody suffer, or there's evil, something evil happened to somebody and they can't make sense of it. It either happened to them or it happened to somebody else, and it throws them for the loop. And the reason why is they're not properly understanding and appropriating justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. So this is extremely practical. Because your perseverance in the faith, the preservation of the faith, hinges on it. Let me just say, you know, like, like any earthly father, God hurts with us when we experience the pains and the sufferings of life. 
Now, the scriptures are clear about this, but unlike an earthly father, God is able to redeem and make our suffering an important and purposeful waypoint in our journey of life. He does this in a couple of ways. First of all, when we face suffering rooted in the gospel, our confidence in God is refined and matured. This is the point at the very beginning of verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings. That, that word rejoice, you know what that word actually is? It's the word that we ended with last week in the message, boasting. We are boasting in our sufferings. There's a rejoicing, a boasting. And boasting is what? It's a confidence in something. We're putting our confidence in God. And so the point here is that when we face suffering rooted in the gospel, and, and we're appropriating uh, the, the, our justification by grace, and we're grounded in that properly, and in, grounded in the gospel, what it actually does is it increases our confidence in our Savior and in our Heavenly Father. We end up rejoicing, boasting, growing more confident through our sufferings in our Heavenly Father. There's a confidence in God that grows and begins to undergird everything. And this doesn't imply that there won't be times of doubt. Because there will be. It doesn't mean that you won't waver. It doesn't mean you won't have weak moments. It doesn't mean that you won't go through periods of depression when you go through a severe uh, time of suffering and life tribulation. And we see this, and thank thankfully, God has shown us in his word, great men and women of God, as they faced these types of suffering, they had periods where they got knocked off kilter. That, listen, and if that's where you're at this morning, you're in a normal place. You don't have to beat yourself up and you don't have to worry about God punishing you for going through that kind of experience in your life. The good news of the gospel is that he loves you so much that he sticks by your side even during your weak moments. And what God does is he keeps nudging you and nudging you and, and popping on you until he gets you back on course. And he'll get you back on course. It may take some time. And you may come off course and he'll nudge you back on course and he'll get you... Listen, I think my whole life seems to be a story of getting off course and getting nudged back on course and off and because it's hard sometimes. But that's the goodness of our Heavenly Father. And, and what you see over time is as you go through these types of sufferings, that your confidence in God grows. A second thing that happens here is that suffering that's framed with the right understanding of justification sets off what Tim Keller calls a sanctifying chain reaction. What does he say here? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Okay, So something begins to get set off here, a chain reaction. It, it, it produces endurance. Endurance means perseverance. It's single-mindedness. It's focus. In other words, what he's saying is the suffering ends up 
God ends up using that to strip away things that really maybe aren't quite as important as what we think they are. God uses the suffering to produce a focus on what's most important in life. And so he reorders the priorities of our life through the suffering that comes into our lives. Suffering produces endurance, a a perseverance, a single-mindedness, a realignment of our priorities, and endurance produces character. Okay? Let me give you an example of what this means when he says character here. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I like basketball. I saw a good example of this, of character and basketball recently. Um, I was watching a basketball game, and I was thinking of of a couple of men in our church while I was watching this basketball game because uh, one of our elders and our chairman of our deacons, they love Kentucky, and it was Kentucky basketball. And so I was thinking of Jeff and Mick and, and Phil Hunenfeld, and, and Kentucky loads up every year. It's disgusting. It's like Alabama football. There should be legislation against it, right? And it's just wrong, Okay. And, you know, and of course, all of us who aren't fans, we know that they are somehow extremely skilled at bribing and breaking all the rules. We know that, right? Right. And they are loaded up with talent this year. They have all these freshmen. It is a phenomenal, incredible team. And so I'm watching this game, and I start thinking about Mick and Jeff because they're playing this team called Evansville. They're in Rupp Arena. I mean, Kentucky never loses in Rupp Arena. I can't even remember that. And here they're playing this team. I mean, this is like a warm-up game. And Evansville is winning at halftime. And it's like, whoa, this is awesome. I'm going to watch this game, right? Who knows? We have an upset going on. And of course, you know what everybody in America is expecting, right? What are you expecting? They're going to come out at halftime. What did you expect at halftime, right? Yeah, they're going to come out. Kentucky's going to come out, make adjustments, and blow these kids off the court. But you see, there was a difference between these two teams, right? And this is where the word comes into play. Evansville was an older team, a group of guys who'd played together. They had experienced losses together. They had experienced close losses where they just barely lost. And then they had experienced games where they were behind and they fought through adversity together and they won. You see, over time, because they had, they had developed character and they had developed this through adversity and playing basketball. The Kentucky team, they had just practiced together. They had so much more talent than the Evansville team had. By the end of this season, Kentucky's going to hand Evansville their head on a platter 10 out of 10 times, okay? But on this night, the Kentucky team did not have the character. Why? Because they hadn't been through the adversity that the Evansville team had had. And so Evansville ends up winning the game, and all of us who hate Kentucky went, yes! I don't hate Kentucky. I hate Duke. But anyway. um, (laughs) Sorry, Chris Baptist. My money goes to the Tar Heels. Anyway. uh, (laughs) But you get the idea there. That's what this is getting at. I mean, this, that's just, that, that little story is just a microcosm of what happens to us in life. He's saying, listen, we have to go through these times of hardship and suffering and trials and tribulations because what it does is it, God uses it to produce gravitas. 
poise through adversity, confidence through testing, credibility through successfully walking through trials. Think about that for a second. Think about how practical that is. The fact that by going through these kinds of sufferings, you have a credibility with your friends and with your neighbors so that when they go through suffering, you can speak truth into their life with legitimacy because you've walked that journey already. Hey, a third and final benefit. We experience the reassuring love of God. Verses 5 to 11 are all about this love of God that is here. And this reassuring love, Paul says, we experience it in four ways. The very first way is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the first time in the book of Romans that the Holy Spirit is being mentioned. It will not be the last by any stretch of the imagination. But what does he say? Every one of us has the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we have this power inside of us. And an aspect of his ministry, a vital and an important aspect, is for him to pour out, look at this imagery, to pour out the love of God into our hearts. And not only to pour it out, to continually pour it out. That's the tense of the verb. What's the word picture he's giving here? Any of us who've ever gone to a grow box, I have a grow box, right? And I, every now and then I have to go out to it and it's dry, the dirt is dry, and I take a big thing of water and I go there and I pour out, I don't know why I do it because it's just full of weeds, but I take the water and I pour it all out and you can just see the dirt go from dry to moist. It's like it's going, ah, right? Like it's just taking it all in. It's relief. And that's the picture of what the Holy Spirit does to us. He's pouring out the love of God. And on the heels of these verses talking about suffering, do you see why this would be such an important problem? You're going through suffering. You're going through tribulation and trial. At no other time, you need to feel the love of God when you're going through suffering. You see, it's one thing to know objectively God loves me. But there are times in our lives when we don't need to just know it. We need to feel it. You understand what I'm saying? We need to feel it subjectively that He loves me. Hey, do do you feel that love this morning? Or are you like the dry grow box? Says, I need a fresh pouring into my life of God's love. I want to remind you of what Jesus says In Luke chapter 11, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you're not feeling the love of God in your life, Christian, ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you in this way. Plead with Him, cry before Him, pour out this love before me. We also have to recognize something else. Part of the reason that we don't experience the subjective feelings of the love of God, that reassuring love, is that it is tied to the objective truth, which is the content. 
and the basis of God's love. And that's what verses 6 to 9 come into play. We experience the reassuring love of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but verses 6 to 9 tell us we also experience that reassuring love of God through the cruciform love of Christ. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. That's kind of confusing. Let me just stop there. What's Paul getting at? Why would you die for a good person and not a righteous person? That doesn't really make sense, does it? Okay, what he's getting at, there's some underlying words there. Uh, the, the good person is righteous, but the good person is, he said, is somebody that you have a, a close relationship with. In other words, it's, it's some, he's saying, you know, I, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just pick two people, okay, and it just has totally random, okay. Um, David Beckwith is a righteous person. I may not die for, for David, okay. He's a righteous dude and everything, but you know, okay. Um, but you know, Bob Jensen, we just, you know, he's been my 30-year mentor, second dad. If say this was the case. I might die for him. He's a good man. You see, see the difference there? And so it's, it's just a qualitative thing. But, but his whole point is, probably wouldn't die for, for Bob either. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of the point here, right? You say, he might, but might not either. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he's setting up a comparison, an important comparison. Because it's, it's, it's easy for us to wonder especially easy for us to wonder if God loves us, really loves us when we're struggling with sin or if we are going through an intense time of suffering. And at times like this, man, you can mark it down. The enemy is going to come and he's going to whisper everything in your ear. And it's a lie about God and God's goodness and his love for you. And he's going to seek to weaken your assurance and your trust in God's love for you. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, when this happens, you've got to stop and you've got to look at the cross and then think about what God has already done for you on Calvary's tree. If you want to feel the reassuring love of God, it starts with the content of the cross. What has God objectively done for you already? How has he already interacted with you? And if you look at the tenses of these words, it's interesting how he, he mixes the past and the present tense. It's like, like Christ has died in the past. In reality, Christ historically died in the past. But the way he says it, it's almost like Christ died right now for us. What's he getting at? He's saying because the way we experienced it is we were enemies from God. We were running from God. We were ungodly, he says. We were not the good person. We were sinners. We were, his, we were at war with him. And what did he do? He ran us down. He chased us down and he made the crucifixion of Christ real to us. It's as if we were there, as if we happened right then and there in our lives. While we were in that state of sin, God made the crucifixion real and understandable. And he applied that grace to our heart. And he says, go back to that. Preach that truth to yourself. Live in light of that truth. Think about it. 
If God would go to all of that effort to chase you down and to bring you into his family, do you think he's then going to turn his back on you now that he's declared you righteous? If he would love you like that when you were a sinner at war with him, is he going to kick you out now that you have been declared righteous and beautiful, having 24-7 access into the throne room of God? Of course not. You're his. And he's never going to let you go. This is giving us a taste at the end of chapter 8 when he says, neither height nor depth, nothing, nothing above or above, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so in these moments of doubt, go to that cruciform love of Christ and preach it to yourself. And one final thought here in verses 9 and 10 is that we experience this reassuring love through the deliverance from any kind of future condemnation. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Church, you want to know how much God loves you? I want you to hear this this morning. Walk out the door with this ringing in your ears. God has no more wrath for you. If you're in Jesus Christ, God has no more wrath for you. He only has love for you. He only has grace for you. He only has mercy for you. His wrath for you was poured out on Christ. God has no wrath for you, only love for you. And so when we mess up this week, we're going to mess up this week. I want you to remember, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the good news of the gospel. And that tells us how much God absolutely loves us. Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father could not love us like this if you had not borne his wrath on the tree and taken our sins upon yourself for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love for us that you would die to make us your brothers and your sisters. We praise you. We boast in your name this morning, Jesus. We boast in the cross that you died upon. We boast in that tomb that you were buried in. We boast in your resurrection. We boast in your ascension that right now you sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father, interceding on our behalf so that we can have that eternal access as righteous sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And Lord Jesus, I would pray for the one here this morning who's struggling. Some are struggling because they've yet to, to taste this saving grace that you alone can give. Would you work in their heart? 
Others of us, Lord, are, are, are your brothers and sisters, but we're struggling. There's things in our lives. It may be trials and tribulations. It may be issues with sin. We need your grace. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would pour your power into our lives. We cannot live as followers of Christ on our own. We need you to empower us. We need you to change us. And most of all, Holy Spirit, we need to feel that love of our Heavenly Father on a day-by-day basis. Would you do this work of grace in our hearts, we would ask. In your name, we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.